Good morning, guys. Good to see you. Hey, listen, if you guys have a Bible, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter 3. Um, we're going to get into this in just a moment. Uh, before we jump into that, a couple quick things before we jump into this. Um, I kind of want to set the stage a little bit. We've been in a series on Sunday mornings as we gather. Uh, going through this book, just verse by verse, chapter by chapter, it's typically how we do things as a church here. Periodically, we kind of veer from that just as we sense God leading in other ways. But for the most part, generally, that's kind of what we do. Uh, it's, it, and if you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. One of the benefits, I would say, of um, going through the Bible like this is it, is it forces us to have to wrestle with passages in Bible teachings and concepts and themes that might be uncomfortable for us to go through. And that's also the downside because we have to uh, deal with uh, challenging passages and themes and ideas that are uncomfortable to us. Um, But the fact of the matter is, is that if we are to be followers of Jesus, then that means that there are going to be occasions where we will be confronted with choices, choices to follow Jesus or choices to not follow Jesus and follow what we think might make more sense, make more sense to us, uh, in our cultural context. Um, and yet I would argue that as followers of Jesus, uh, throughout all history, uh, they have always been forced to really kind of deal with the teaching of Jesus versus the larger cultural concepts that are widely available to them. Um, and that makes you by virtue of following Jesus, oftentimes, um, disconnected with the broader culture. That shouldn't shock us, that shouldn't be offensive, that shouldn't be difficult, but it is part of the, uh, the landscape of what it means to follow Jesus. And so with that being said, I want to, as we jump into chapter 3, I'm going to read it in just a minute, not yet, don't read it yet. Um, uh, I want to give you a little bit of a disclaimer, that this is one of those passages that may cause a little bit of triggering for some. Um, now, Several months ago, we had gone through another passage in the book of Peter. And and once I read it, um, for some of you, you'll be like, oh my gosh, I totally get it. So don't read ahead yet. Don't read ahead yet. Some of you are already looking at your Bible yet. Uh, We'll get to that in just a second. But hold time. Hold time. Um, So sometimes Peter will address certain topics that are triggering. Because in our cultural context right now, we look at this passage or these passages through our modern day uh, construct. And it might not make a lot of sense to us. And so what that requires of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, to sometimes do a little bit of homework, do a little digging, do a little research. And so before we even jump in and read the text, I want to give you at least three, um, what I actually find uh, to be helpful tools to help us make sense of the Bible. So I'll just put these out here for you. I'll go through them real quickly, and then we will jump into the text and begin to read it, and then hopefully begin to make some sense of this. So the three things are, number one, is the importance of context. Context is essential. So in other words, when you read your Bible, uh, you should always take into mindset the idea of, of who is the original audience, um, what types of challenges are they facing, what questions are they asking. It's really important because what you'll find, there are going to be occasions when, for example, a New Testament author, even an Old Testament author, will write something and address something, and oftentimes they're addressing a question. So I, I like to make the example, it's, it's kind of like listening into a conversation um, a one-way conversation on a telephone call. Um, you do not know the entire context of the conversation. You might think you do based upon your interpretation of what that one side is saying, but you don't know all the nuances and all the various angles in which the other person is, is maybe asking questions. And in a lot of ways, that's the way reading the Bible is. 
is it forces us to ask these questions. Like what is and what are the questions that are being asked? So the idea of context is essential. The second thing is confront distortions. And what I mean by this is, uh, I guess I'll put it into the form of a question. How many of you have noticed that there are occasions where the Bible gets uh, weaponized or distorted and it creates false teaching or doctrine? In other words, bad practice. Have you, have you seen that at all? Have any of you guys experienced that? Anybody experienced bad teaching that has actually led to maybe your oppression or abuse that's happened in a context? Um, the fact of the matter is it happens. And what happens is any Bible passage can be distorted and abused. And, and then that becomes sort of a weapon to bring destruction upon the lives of other people. This happens all the time. It's happened really from the beginning and even all the way throughout you know, thousands of years any time that there is a word, in fact, I would even go so far as to say it happened in the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, page one of the Bible, the, the devil comes up, right? He's in the form of a serpent and he begins to say, did God really say? And so what, what, what is, what's happening there? It's, it's his attempt to distort what God has said to create and recraft a new way of being human. It happens all the time and it shouldn't shock us that it continues to happen. So, uh, I think important tool in reading the Bible is recognize that there's going to be occasions where we read passages of the Bible that might cause, like I said, triggering. You might break out in hives uh, spontaneously. You might get bristling and whatnot. And you're like, what's going on here? Uh, probably what's happening is that you have been the victim of a bad teaching, and now you're responding to that. And so we have to confront that. We can't ignore it. We can't dismiss it. We can't be apathetic towards it. We have to address it head on. It's the idea of recognizing there's an elephant in the room. We have to address it. We can't just somehow explain it away um, and then go on about the rest of our life. We have to address those things. The third thing is the carefulness not to criticize or critique um, or to condemn the text. Now, there's a tendency. Uh, C.S. Lewis would uh, describe this in his book, Mere Christianity, as chronological snobbery. Uh, it basically goes like this. Here we are living in 2021. We know way more than people did 2,000 years ago. Are, are we tempted to do that? Of course we are. We're always tempted to do that. Um, what about if we say, okay, here we are living in America. We know way more than people that live in you know, North America or, or say South America or Africa. We know more than they do. We are way more advanced and way more progressed than other cultures are. Again, that's a very form of cultural snobbery. We're all prone towards this. And so I think the temptation for us in reading passages that might be a little bit difficult to swallow sometimes is immediately to begin to uh, condemn or critique uh, something without really doing the hard work of really trying to make sense of it. Uh, again, uh, I just got, I mentioned this to you guys uh, several weeks ago, but I actually gone away to El Salvador this past week and I was actually on my way home. I was actually, right now, a week ago, I was actually surfing. That's my last final session of the day before I hopped on a plane to get home. So, um, but again, in a different country, you are prone to look at the way things are being done in that country and be critical of it. And the fact is, is that What's really important is for you to try to understand it. And we should know this uh, within the past year. We've, we've seen all sorts of cultural, racial type tensions arise. And one of the key things that has kind of come to the surface is the importance of sitting down and having conversations with other people and asking questions to gain their perspective, to gain their viewpoint. We need that. Um, otherwise, if we don't have that, all we do is we degenerate down into tribalism, and it's my faction against your faction, and my ideology against your ideology, and my attempt to, uh, uh, 
you know, subvert your thinking and your understanding. And you have nothing but cultural gridlock. You don't advance. You don't go any further. Everything just degenerates down into a lot of angry, upset people. There's a better way of being human. And I would suggest that as we read the Bible, it's important for us to recognize that we, we need to be careful not to condemn or critique a text that does not make sense to us before we begin to do the research and ask bigger questions. So with that being said, I want to now read the passage. In fact, uh, if you guys wouldn't mind, how about standing one more time as we read the Bible together? In fact, I want to pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. I'm going to read verse 21 all the way down to verse 23, and then I'm going to skip down into 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read down to verse 6. So with that being said, let's jump in. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, or 1 Peter 1, uh, uh, 2, uh, 21. 1 Peter 2, 21. That's what I'm trying to say. For to this you have been called. He's re- been referring to suffering. Uh, one of the bigger themes that we've seen repeatedly uh, come up through this passage or through this entire book is suffering well and doing good. The combination of the two, both suffering well, but at the same time being able to do good, maintain a posture or really more importantly, a character of not just simply doing good, but being good people, being the type of people that are radically transformed to be good and therefore you will do good. So he goes on to say, for to this you have been called. Because Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 goes on to say this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of the hair, the putting on gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let it be the adorning of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are his children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is ultimately frightening. And this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to pray right now. Jesus, right now, we ask you that you would just open our hearts and our eyes and our understanding and our imagination to try to understand and make sense of this passage here. So we commit this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would y'all grab a seat? So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you bristled at that or kind of started twitching a little bit and breaking out a little bit in hives? Some probably had. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. Why? Um, which, again, brings me back to why I think it's important to look at this within that larger context, which I said. So what I want to do is I want to use that framework, which I kind of laid out for you, and use that sort of our grid, and then I will close with some final thoughts with regard to this whole passage. So first of all, let's just take a look at a little bit of the context. The context. What was happening within this passage, uh, and to whom was Peter writing, and what was going on? So a couple of things that we know based upon the construct of this book. Uh, number one, that there's no doubt... 
Peter's writing to uh, women that are in the church, uh, wives, um, and many of them were obviously married to non-Christian men. Now, why this is important, because many of these women had converted or began to follow Jesus while their husbands themselves had not been devoted to Jesus. So in other words, what you have is what you might describe as kind of a, a woman who's married to a non-Christian. Um, and so obviously there seemed to be a, a larger population to whom Peter was writing, and so therefore he's addressing it. Which, again, if you were to ask the question, what were the questions that these people might have been asking? Well, it's obvious that some of these people in the church happen to be women. They were married, and they're asking a question. How are we supposed to uh, survive? How are we supposed to get on within the context of, of doing good, loving God, living holy lives uh, when, our, when our own husbands um, are not faithful, faithfully following Jesus or don't even really care to follow Jesus? Or maybe in some cases, it might even be hostile. Now, in a lot of ways, what we've been seeing is a theme throughout the book of Peter's that Peter's been basically writing is that this idea, we'll get to in just a moment, that word submit. Now, that, that might be the key word that causes the hives to break out, the word submit. But I'll get to that in just a moment. But the point that I want to make is this, is that concept that Peter's writing is, is not exclusive to women. It's not exclusive because what we'll see is that he actually describes this is how followers of Jesus are to live within culture and society. This is how workers in the context of a workplace are to actually uh, to to maintain their their position. In other words, the idea is dealing with roles, various roles that we play in society. Now, if I were to stand back and just ask a cultural question for each one of us, are there various roles that you and I play in culture and society? The answer is, of course, of course. Some of you are students. Can you walk into class, march into class, and make these demands of your rights, and somehow still expect to get a good passing grade? Probably not, depending upon what your demands are. I mean, if your demand is like, I want to do no homework, and I want an A, well, likelihood is that you will not get those demands met, because that's just not how the whole program works. You do have a responsibility, though, to submit to what the teacher says, to do the homework, and to respond in compliant ways that show dignity, value, and honor, and respect to the employee, to the to the to the teacher. The same goes for you know the workplace. We all, many of us, have jobs where you have a responsibility to your boss, and um, of course there are certain demands that we can make that have to do with like human rights and how you're treated, and um, and if you're mistreated, you can make demands and rights saying that I, I expect to be treated differently. Those are fine. But for the most part, there is a, there's a, there's an, an essence of order that's to be maintained. And that's the idea of roles within society and culture. The same you can even add with regard to being a citizen. Um, as citizens of the United States of America, uh, there are certain roles that we play that we're to, you know, uh, fulfill in terms of o- obeying the laws that are there laid out for us. Again, this is, this is not, you know, new information. This is just the ideas that Peter's basically tapping into. And now he's beginning to look at the subject matter of families. Um, um, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. For the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the subject of, of wives in the relationship to the husband, husbands in relationship to the wives. And I told you a couple weeks ago, I'm going to throw in a freebie. And we'll look at the idea of not only uh, wives doing good, which is kind of the topic here, the title here. Uh, next week, we'll look at husbands doing good. The key is idea of doing good. And then I'll even throw in a freebie one that has nothing to do with the text here, just because I said I would, is uh, singles doing good. What does it look like for people that are single? And how to maintain a lifestyle of goodness. Um, even though Peter addresses none of that, I'm going to give a teaching that I've never actually done before, but address the subject of how to do good as a follower of Jesus when you have no relationship to a husband or a wife in that context. How do you do good? Um, so 
I'll get to that in the weeks to come. But what I want to look at now is, again, as we go on, think about some of this context that's going on here. The next thing that we see with regard to the context here is that this is a male-dominated society. Now, if you want a good context for this, think uh, the movie My uh, Big Fat Greek Wedding, right? If you remember that movie, you get the idea that the, the dad there, he is like the head of the household. Unquestioned head of household. There's a line in the story, which I don't know exactly. I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but I'll give you my like a little translation of it. Um, but the wife, uh, the mom's talking. She says, look, the husband might be the head of the household, but the wife, remember what she says? She's the neck. She's the neck. She turns the head. So that leads me to the next thing with regard to this idea of context, that even though women had no rights in terms of uh, a robust formation of rights the way that we would here in 21st century America, even though rights for women were, for the most part, minimal in that larger uh, Greco-Roman culture in the first century, yet a woman's influence was potentially powerful. She may not have had rights the way that we know about rights today. However, her influence was profound, potentially. And this is what Peter's saying, and this is why I think it's so important with regard to the context here, that what Peter is doing is he, he's basically writing in such a way to, to bring forth uh, a sense of, of influence. He's wanting to empower these women so that they can fully live and thrive and flourish. I mean, the very fact that he even addresses the women tells you a radical transformation that's happening in the early church. Because again, first century, women for the most part, again, this is just the way that Greco-Roman culture and society had been shaped. They didn't have a whole lot of information going their way. And yet Peter writes a fairly large amount of information to women to basically say, hey, here's a way to live that empowers you to live in a way that flourishes. And it's not bound. It's not a slave to anyone or anything. Again, if right now immediately you're thinking, well, he uses the word submit, doesn't that mean slavery? What you're doing right now is you're taking the word submit in its modern day 21st century cultural form and you're trying to force that onto the ancient text. Can't do that. It's not fair. You gotta let the text speak for itself. So with that being said, I wanna move on to the next thing which is the idea of confronting distortions. Again, has this passage been abused? The answer is absolutely, for sure. Very much so abused. In fact, this passage and most other passages, especially in the New Testament, that Paul even talks about women's role in terms of how they're to respond or relate. Um, and oftentimes this has been abused. And what we see oftentimes is that by way of these abuses, uh, it's basically subjugated women to places where they should not necessarily be. So with that being said, um, Unfortunately, in terms of how these passages have been abused, I want to just read a little passage from a uh, Bible scholar. Uh, I don't want to hack his name, but he's an African writer, and he wrote the Africa study commentary. And here's what he said. It was really insightful. He says, these passages should not be used to justify oppression of women or to silence them and exclude them from the various roles in the church or to limit them to a domestic sphere. Unfortunately, the church has done these things in order to support aspects of culture that have negative effect on women. This reality has led some contemporary theologies of liberation to point out the calling on people to submit tends to result in their eventually being treated as an underclass, which obviously he's making the point that's not good. He says, this was not Peter's intention and as a part of its witness to society today. The church needs to confront the plight of women while remaining faithful to living out the teachings of Scripture. So on the one hand, we have to recognize, are and is this passage 
advocating for the suppression and the oppression of women. Absolutely not. Has it been distorted to do that? Absolutely. For sure. And so as a Christian, we have to acknowledge that is part of our history. Those are part of the skeletons that are in the closet that we have to just simply bring out and acknowledge say that is not at all what Peter had intended. It's not what Jesus taught. It's not how Jesus lived. It's not how Jesus treated women. So what does it mean? And that's where I want to begin to bring some shapeliness to this. So which leads me now to the next thing, which regard to some carefulness not to condemn the text. And I'll wrap it up with some final thoughts I think that Peter is wanting for us to take. So carefulness not to condemn the text. Now, again, like I said, I think a lot of this stems around that single word where he describes as submission. Submission. That word, I think, is the very like epicenter of bristling for many modern people. And I think for a good reason, to be quite frank. Again, like I said, in acknowledging the fact that passages like this have been abused, as well as other passages that describe, you know, servants be submissive to your masters. See right there, right there. It's pointing out that uh, people can take advantage. And I even mentioned when I taught on that passage, this is the other passage I would say that was potentially challenging, is that uh, that passage has been abused in ways that are, are not in compliance with the heart of Jesus. So with that being said, I think we have to think about carefully what does the word submission actually mean? Uh, the particular word uh, that we, uh, I want for us to think about, submission cannot mean being apathetic or indifferent to injustice or abuse cannot mean that uh, in other words this is not saying that a woman should just simply be a doormat at all because he describes women to be submissive to your husband as to the lord so just like he said you know citizens christians as citizens be submissive to your government as unto the lord meaning that there are occasions for civil disobedience there are occasions where a woman should stand up to her husband and say no the way that you're treating me is is completely inconsistent with the heart and mind of jesus now i i've had and i've read stories and i've listened to testimony of women that have been in the church that have lived under abusive relationships with their husband and their spouses and their pastor has told them your job is to just be quiet and submit that is horrible advice it's that's actually abusive teaching now really what should happen is if that man is in any way shape or form being physically sexually abusive he needs to go to jail is what he needs to do Call the cops on that guy. He needs to spend some time behind bars. I'm being really honest here. Never, ever, ever should a man ever misuse passages like this to somehow become a pretext for abuse or keeping a woman locked into abusive relationship. That is not what the scripture is teaching. That is a form of spiritual abuse. I think Jesus takes great uh, frustration against but the point that I'd make is this. So it can't mean being apathetic or being indifferent to injustice or abuse. And then secondly, this is not meaning all in any man whatsoever a woman needs to be submissive to. Again, this is kind of a distortion that has been found in some uh, aberrant patriarchy movements. There are movements today afoot within Christian circles claiming to be Christian circles, that advocate some form of a patriarchy where men are to have all authority, all headship over all aspects of life, and women's job is to really, for the most part, be kind of this backwoods, quiet role in silence. That is not what the scripture teaches. Straight up. It's wrong. It's false. Uh, But the point that I would make with regard to this is that 
Peter is describing here, again, a context. The context cannot be missed. These are women in the church who are married to non-Christian men. And they're trying to ask the question, how do we live lives that are good and honoring and holy before God, especially when our husbands... And again, one last thing I would say with regard to this. That in the ancient world, it would be unheard of for a woman to be like, you know what, I'm going to go to the church down the street while you go worship goddess Diana. Like, that's not how it worked back then. Like, a woman, for the most part, would be deeply linked and connected to her husband. The idea of freedom of religion was unheard of back then. You would not just go shopping for a new church. That's not how it worked. So if a woman decides to become a follower of Jesus, she's basically breaking ranks with her husband, which in some contexts, some cultural uh, elements could be very uh, disadvantageous for her, but also destructive for her. Because again, the way that the ancients depended upon these uh, idols and gods was the idea of the favor of the gods upon your little village was essential. And so the way that you earned the favor of the gods was by offering these sacrifices to these false pagan entities. But what happens if your own spouse no longer worships Zeus or Diana or one of the other ancient gods of the, of the pantheon? She's, she could be incurring uh, loss of finances to the family. She could be incurring some form of like uh, setbacks for the village and city. And that brings shame upon the life of the man. So there's a lot of challenges and difficulties that might be afoot for her as she begins to follow Jesus. So they're asking a question, how do we do good? Do good? How do we live holy lives? Knowing that we're basically going against our husband within the context of the culture, male-dominated, patriarchal society. How do we do this in a way that makes sense? And this is what Peter is basically casting a vision for. So I want to real, real quickly go through this idea of the word submission. What does this mean? Next, uh, I'll just go through a handful of these passages. I'm not going to read through all of them. But if you'll notice that the majority of these passages actually appear in the book of First Peter. It's the word uh, hupotasso. And throughout the book of 1 Peter, you see this kind of rise. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We had studied that several months ago. Then he goes on to say in verse 2, 18, Servants, be subject to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, we just read this. Chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. So with Jesus, we're told that these angels and demons and spiritual entities and powers are ultimately subjected to him. Uh, James, uh, well, here's First uh, Peter chapter five, verse five. I think this is also really insightful. Just listen to how he describes this. He says, "Be subject to the elders." Now, he's going to describe the the leaders of the church and the the role and responsibility of working with them. We'll get to that passage when we get to that passage. But right now, he says, "Be subject to the elders." Then he goes on to say, and he finishes with a really important clause at the end. He says, "Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another." And that seems to be the uh, really important insight in terms of what does it mean to be submissive. Or the idea of submitting. I think it means something to do with clothing yourselves with humility. The idea seems to be the concept of be humble. Be humble. Be subject to one another. Serve one another. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. Don't be loud, obnoxious, bristling, angry, obnoxious. Uh, but maintain a different posture. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, James chapter four, verse seven, I'll wrap it up with a couple of these other final ones. He says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, Romans chapter eight, verse 20. I'll look at this one. He says, uh, actually verse eight, seven, he says, the mind that is set upon the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to him. The normal, natural mindset of our hearts is not one that wakes up in the morning and says, Lord, I want everything that you have for my life. 
the normal, natural, default mode of our heart is to say, I want what I want. I don't really care what God wants. I'm not really interested in what God wants. I want what I want. But a heart that's remade, renewed, which is what we're going to get to in just a moment. I want what God wants. Which leads me to the final question I really just want to uh, think about with you guys. Is I want to think about the vision that Peter's casting for what does goodness look like in this context and with this setting. What is the vision? So Peter wants to cast this renewed understanding of how to live in light of the gospel. And in this particular context, specifically dealing with uh, women that are married to non-Christians. Again, I think there's some carryover in terms of how we can apply some of these concepts. But I want to finish with some final thoughts with regard to this. That the vision that Peter casts for those, and for I would even say for all of us, is number one, is to have a conduct that reflects Jesus. I think this is the first two passages. Again, listen to what he says in this statement. He says, likewise, women be subject to your husbands, so that even the word likewise is really important. Because the word likewise actually connects us with that first passage that we just read in chapter 2, where he says, for Jesus suffered. When Jesus was reviled, when Jesus faced people that were hostile towards him, Jesus didn't whip out a sword. He didn't whip out a bazooka. He didn't like load his handgun. He didn't shoot someone. He didn't kill someone. He wasn't out to destroy their character. He wasn't interested in canceling them. Jesus, while he was reviled, did not revile. But he entrusted himself to the Lord. And that's what the word likewise means. As Jesus did this, as we as citizens are called to live in the context of a non-Christian culture, as a servant that is maybe working for a, 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 a boss or a manager or a master in the context in the Old Testament or in the New Testament even, that is not very kind or nice. How does one live? And he uses this idea of the way that we're to live is in this context. And the concept is this conduct that reflects Jesus, because this is how Jesus acted. This is how Peter is inviting us to envision what it looks like to really act. So a conduct that reflects Jesus, ultimately, if you want to think of it this way, it's the idea of orderliness is greater than chaos. God cares about orderliness. The concept of chaos, the concept of uh, blood Letting other people, the concept of scapegoating, finding someone that we must hold accountable to crush and kill and destroy and shed their blood. These might play to the more base nature of human beings, where we want an enemy to hate. We want a collective enemy that we can just destroy and crush and mock. And it may feel good. It may feel empowering. It is not, brothers and sisters, it is not the way of Jesus. It may be the way of America, it may be the way of CNN, it may be the way of Fox News. It is not the way of Jesus. Okay? That may be offensive to some. Because again, I get it, we want an enemy to hate. But what Jesus casts is a whole new vision that says we are to love enemies. Lay our lives down for enemies. That's not popular, but it is the way of Jesus. So the idea that he's casting for them is to have a conduct that reflects the lifestyle of Jesus. In the context of marriage, he's basically saying, don't be nagging your husband. Don't be constantly forcing them. Don't be constantly preaching at them. But live your life in such a way so that as you lovingly submit and serve and are kind and gentle and do the things that good people embody, that by your good life, they will see 
your good deeds. Uh, some of you guys might be familiar with a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. He wrote, I think it's called The Case for Christ. If you've never read that book, I highly recommend getting it, checking it out. He was a lawyer. I think he worked for, or a journalist, I think is what he was, uh, worked for, um, I don't know, some newspaper or whatever. But the point of the matter is, is, is he was not a Christian. His wife was a Christian. And he, he had noticed his wife consistently, constantly just loving him, not preaching at him, not putting like scriptures or all around the house just to annoy him, not putting on Christian radio, which by the sheer fact of Christian radio, it can be offensive. But the point of the matter is whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, but the point that I would make is this, is that she just was kind and loving and good. And this became to an agitation for him. That caused him to want to dig deeper into the claims of Jesus. So he actually wrote a whole book about this, uh, trying to disprove Christianity. And in the process, comes to discover the power of Jesus. How? Why? He would say the conduct of his wife looked a lot like Jesus. And it reshaped him, reshaped his future. Lastly, is the vision I think that Peter is casting is having to do with a character that's ultimately remade by Jesus, the character that's remade by Jesus. And there's a couple ways in which he describes this, and I'll just kind of make allusion to these. He says, uh, verse 3, he says, Do not let the adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, but let it be the adorning of the hidden person of the heart, which uh, with the imperishable beauty of the gentle spirit, which God in God's sight is very precious. Uh, now again, this is one of those classic examples where this passage has been completely distorted, where in some, some Christian circles, um, they, they actually say you're not allowed to wear makeup, you have to wear like, I don't know why denim dresses were somehow like the thing, but like in some context, you gotta wear a long denim dress that goes all the way down to your knees and it's gotta go all the way down. I don't even know where this stuff comes from. Again, it's a classic example of distortions. But the point that I would make is this, is that that's not what Peter's saying. He's basically, he's not saying don't ever comb your hair, don't ever paint the barn if it needs painted, don't ever, you know, don't ever make yourself look nice. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that focus most importantly upon the inner person. I want to just say something. If you hear this passage and you think, well, that's oppressive. I just would ask you honestly to look at the culture at large around us and help me understand is not the format of something like Instagram not oppressive? Where you look at the images that are portrayed by, for example, in this context, women that are fit and they look good and how they eat their food looks good and they work out and they look really good and they got six-pack abs and they look really good. And here you are as a woman in 21st century Central Coast, California, and you're trying to make sense. How do I, how do I look like that? That is oppressive and exhausting and then what peter's saying there's another way to be human and i want to free you women of god to discover a pathway to true freedom true freedom true beauty is not this external form that takes all this time and energy exhaustion and money some of you have it, some of you don't. Some of you are naturally beauty, some of you simply aren't. Some of you don't have a lot of money, some of you have a lot of money. Some of you have the ability to afford Botox and other types of uh, fashion shaping trends to be able to tap in. Some of you don't have that. What happens if you don't have that? What happens if you get older? And What happens if you're in an accident and you're not able to actually spend the time and energy? You're not able to work out. You look at all of these other various forms of beauty and now you're in this state of like, that's not me. I guess I'm doomed to eternal cultural hell. 
That is, unless you know the power of the gospel. That says, in Jesus, you are loved beyond anything you can ever even imagine. And true beauty is not this external stuff that's fading away and passing. True beauty is not based upon how well you adapt to cultural trends, not how much time you invest in uh, braiding the hair. In fact, I'll show you a little uh, clip of this. Is, this is actually um, some, if you look on Google, like you got to love Google. Right? It's great. Um, ancient Roman hair, hairdos. Like it was crazy. Like these are ancient Roman hairdos. And they took hours, hours to create. And this is what Peter is describing. Don't spend all this time and energy. On all this stuff that's passing and fading, at some point your hair might even fall out. Instead, find and discover the beauty that comes from being set free from the gospel and focus on the beauty that's internally. And here's the the reality of all this. That beauty is available to all women. Talk about liberating. Beauty that's, that's like this, which is funny, is only available to some women. Not all women. If that becomes the cultural standard of glory and beauty, that eliminates many, many women that don't have the money, the time, the energy. And they will be forever on the outside. (laughs) But the gospel says, no, all have access to this beauty that gives way to ultimate life. And this is what I think Peter's describing. So final takeaway is this. The gospel actually liberates. Peter's message is the exact opposite of, press, of oppressive. It's liberating. It's freeing. It's available. It's, it's, uh, um, it's democratizing. It's available to all human beings, no matter who you are, no matter what social economic skill you are, no matter what age you are, whether you're young. Again, our, we live in a culture that glorifies youthfulness. We want always to look young. What happens if you get old and you no longer look young? Are you doomed? No, not according to the gospel. You're actually free. And this is why the gospel is so not just functional, but it's beautiful. It gives us life. As we go to the table right now, as we close, I'm going to have uh, Mikey come on up and he'll lead us in a song as we partake of communion together. And then we will partake uh, of the elements uh, together and we will remember why it's so important that as we come to the table, what we do is we remember the fact that in Jesus, all of us come from different places in society, in the culture, social economic scale. And physical abilities, all of us have access to the bread of life. All of us have access to what Jesus offers. And that's what we celebrate here. So as we close, why don't we all stand? And um, I'm going to pray. We will just sing a chorus together. And as we are singing, you're more than welcome to come up and partake of the communion, or at least hold on to the cup, and we'll partake together. If you've got uh, little ones and you'd like to bring them back in here, you're more than welcome to go ahead and do that. And then we will partake of communion together. So let's pray. Let's respond. Let's partake of the elements. And then at the end, in closing, we will do this together. Jesus, thank you for your great love. We thank you, Lord, that what you're doing is you're reshaping a community of people around yourself. And it's because of that, Jesus, that we gladly and joyfully say that we want to submit ourselves to you as our king. That you alone are the one that we would want to give ourselves to because you alone 
have given yourself for us entirely, completely, lovingly, sacrificially. So God, right now we pause, reflect upon your great love as we respond.